we were talking, and they said, uh, they said, thank you for the, for the blessing. Thank you, my sweetheart. You are wonderful. They said, thank you for the way, or, or for, the, for, the, for the blessings that are coming out of the word. And I said, you have no idea. The blessing is mine. I get paid to sit in my office and to study the Bible. Uh, and this week, getting ready for the next couple sermons, uh, translating this passage on the crucifixion, uh, has just been so powerful emotionally uh, to think about what our Savior did for us. And I'd say the things that I find in the Word that I'm not able to bring to you each and every Sunday, um, and there are a hundred things that I find, and I can bring you three or four, maybe five, if I'm willing to push you an extra ten minutes. Um, the blessing's all mine. So I just want to say, in honesty, thank you for the blessing. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you each and every week. Uh, because it is not a burden to prepare a message. It is a blessing. Uh, I get so much more than I could, I could possibly pass on. So I, I thank you for that. I want to I read from John 19. Once I get myself someplace to put my drink here. Um, Let's read starting in John 19, verse 1, and then we'll pray and turn to the word. The scripture says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them. To be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage, and I confess this passage, like so many others, Lord, it is like a jewel. There is so much here that captures the eye and the heart. As you turn it, Lord, and examine this passage. There are so many things happening here. And in, in truth, we can only look at some of them in the period of time that we have. Lord, this 
passage is like a well. There is so much here, it cannot be exhausted. And so, Father, I pray that in this time, given what you have shown me in this, in this passage this week in study, I pray that as we come to this text, Lord, I pray that you would communicate to your people, to the, to the hearts that you have called to this place, that you've brought here, Lord. I pray that each heart and each mind would receive what you have prepared for them, what you want to speak to them this morning. Father, I pray that as we cover ground and we consider truths which are uncomfortable and unpopular, Father, I pray that there might not be a heart that rejects the truths spoken this morning. Father, we're called to hear the truths of your word and to unite them with faith, to believe them, to live in them all of our days. And so we pray, Lord, that you would unite in our hearts this morning faith and action, that you would unite your word with faith, that we might receive the blessings from what we hear this morning. Father, I pray as you deal with us and deal with our sin, as you deal with us and you deal with our illusions of control, as you deal with us and you deal with the fact that we so often portray ourselves as better than we are, Lord, I pray that we would see our Savior and that we would see that as you peel away our defenses, it is not to destroy us, but to bring life. And we pray that we would find that life in your Son. Lord, from beginning and end, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross that we can trust in in hard times. We thank you for the tr cross that we can trust in in good times. We thank you that the cross brings salvation to us, Lord, whether we know you this morning as we begin this message or whether we have known you for years, we can find hope and life and blessing in the cross. And we pray for your grace on us this morning, Lord. Speak to us from your word, we pray. Amen. Ask yourself, how does the will of God work? How do the will of man and the will of God interact together? There are a few common thoughts that come to my mind as I begin to think about that question. I wonder what comes to your mind when you ask yourself, how do the will of man and the will of God go together? Some of my thoughts, uh, things that I've heard. One is that God allows evil, but does not will it. Another is that God is working to end evil. He hates all evil, but he tolerates it because of his commitment to humanity's free will. Another way to look at it is that God chooses and elects those who will eventually choose him, and so he has made his choice. His will is governed by our will. Another way of, of thinking about God's will and his sovereignty and control over evil events is to say that all suffering is bad and evil, and that one day we'll have an opportunity to talk with God, to meet with him, and perhaps in his recognition of the things that have gone wrong in our lives, perhaps he'll make an apology to us for bad things that have happened. Another way that some people have answered this question with regard to evil and God's will is they say that God is trying very, very hard, and we should be patient from him, with him, and not distract him from his work, or he might get angry and punish us. Today, as we come to chapter 19, these first 16 verses, I hope and I pray as we see the majesty and the dignity of Jesus in his sufferings, as we see one who is both fully God and fully human, full human being, I pray that we will be drawn into the mystery of God's sovereignty. And as people, we will learn to trust 
in the plan of our Heavenly Father as Jesus trusted in that plan. I'm going to take this text in, in three portions. Uh, beginning, as, as we begin to look, we're going to see Jesus' ironic majesty. Look down at chapter 19, verse 1. The scripture says that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And if you're anything like me, as you read that statement, you notice that it is just simple. In fact, if we are reading the Bible, perhaps if you're doing a Bible reading program, reading through the Bible in a year, you may read that verse. You may just pass right over in your journey to get chapter 19 done, if that's what you've got to check off on your reading. Notice that the Gospels make no attempt to play on your emotions. They just state the facts as the facts. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. John is showing us here that the flogging, while not carried out by Pilate, is Pilate's responsibility. It's Pilate's will which sends Jesus to get flogged. Think about what happened in chapter 18. Pilate had tried to free Jesus by offering them Barabbas. He'd attempted to pacify the crowd and set, Bara uh, set Jesus free, but instead the people chose Barabbas. And so now Pilate begins another attempt to set Jesus free. This is what he thinks. I will discipline him. And perhaps when the crowd sees the condition of Jesus, their lust for blood will be satisfied by this beating which is given to him. And they, those who are calling for his death will be satisfied. And I will be shown to have administered justice. And Jesus will still have his life. And so everyone will be happy. You may not know this, but there are three kinds of flogging in the Roman Empire. The first is a kind of punishment which is given for minor crimes, and this is a beating with rods. And the rules that govern this are that the person who was to be beaten would be beaten until they relented, until they were defeated, and then the beating would stop. So it's not just three swats with a rod. It's beating until the spirit is broken. A beating with rods. And then there is another kind of beating, which is a whipping with whips. That's the secondary level re reserved for more serious crimes. And then there's a third kind of beating. Each one has a Latin name. The name of the third is a verba ratio. Women and soldiers and citizens were exempt from this kind of beating. Unless you were a soldier convicted of deserting, and then this was the punishment. The soldiers took a whip of leather cords, probably about three feet long. Tied into that were bits of glass to cut the skin open. Metal balls to produce deep bruises and to break bones, and sharp pieces of animal bones to puncture and to wound. A church father who witnessed this said that blood loss was extreme, that deep-seated veins and arteries were exposed. Sometimes internal organs were able to be seen. And the rule that governs this kind of beating is this. It could not stop until the punished man's flesh hung off his back in ribbons. Think about the beating that Jesus endured. Multiple men with weapons beating on him, cutting his flesh open, torturing him. It's no surprise what happens next. Think about what kind of a man would it take to administer this kind of beating. You'd need a cruel person, someone with a hard heart who was unflappable, somebody who would not be moved by cries of anguish or pleas to stop, to let up. They would need men who could give out justice without tears or flinching. I think of all scenes, all reenactments of this, I think the passion gets it right. Where when Jesus 
gets back up, although I think that is a detail that, you know, we don't know if that happened or not, but when Jesus gets back up, these men who are breathing heavily, who have done their best, are angered by the fact that he is not broken. And they resume for another round. They had not done their job well enough. It's no surprise that men like this, as we read, take Jesus aside after the beating is done, and they twist a cruel crown of thorns, and they press it onto his head. They dress him in a robe. Imagine putting on a sweater after you've gotten a serious cut. What that would do to your flesh is the blood dried. The other gospels said that they put a reed in his hand. They began to mock him. They took the reed away, his scepter, and they beat him over the head. They hailed him as king. Hail, king of the Jews. And they offered him mock reverence and honor. And they struck him with their hands. The way the Greek verb is translated. So they struck him. But in Greek, there's a sense of continual beatings over and over and over again. They spat in his face, and they mocked him. They set him up as a fictitious king. And they hailed him as a fake king. And yet, he was a king. These men who mocked him and said, Hail, king of the Jews, they spoke better than they knew. They honored him as king, yet they expressed their worship with bitterness and cruel rejection that comes from their true inward character. I wonder how they would behave if the roles were reversed and they were presented with Jesus in all of his true majesty. Would they cower before him? Would they beg and scream for mercy? He endured with dignity and silence. Think about what he must have looked like. He was crowned with thorns. They perhaps did not know this, but thorns are a symbol of the curse of God on the world from Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face, God told Adam, you will eat bread. And what will the ground produce? You're trying to grow crops, but thorns and thistles will come up. The ground is cursed against humanity. And humanity takes that curse and places it on Jesus' head. This symbol of punishment and anger of God upon humanity. Here Jesus wears them as a symbol that he would bear all the sin and suffering. He's crowned with agony and punishment. But Pilate has a plan to set him free. I think that they continued to beat him up to verse 4, where Pilate says, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus has been mocked. He has been beaten. He has been brutalized, perhaps tortured to within an inch of his life. Notice what Pilate says. I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. What has he been beaten for? For what crime? What did Jesus do to deserve this other than speak the truth of God to those who would listen? And yet Pilate has nearly taken his life from him. Jesus is hobbling around in intense pain, leaving bloody footprints behind him. And Pilate declares that there is no guilt in him. But yet, we know the story, and we know that there is guilt upon him. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, these wounds inflicted on him, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him 
the iniquity of us all. This is Pilate's plan. He has no idea what's going on, really. Jesus has been bitterly punished for humanity's sin, and Pilate is thinking that he has punished Jesus for his own benefit. He's planning on the crowd seeing the horror and relenting. They'll be satisfied with this treatment, and their wrath will be appeased. And so he brings Jesus out. He drags him out. He's probably still got the robe on, still got the crown on, and he cries out, Behold the man. You may see this written places in Latin. He says, Ecce homo. This is the man. Look upon him. As if he's saying, Behold this man that you find so dangerous and threatening that he needs to be crucified. Look at him. He's like a drowned cat. He's a mess. But he speaks better than he knows. Because Jesus is the man. Just as Adam, the original man, sinned and plunged all men and women into sin, Jesus is the man. He is called the second Adam. But he is no mere man. He's the word made flesh, God become man, which makes him one of a kind like no other man going to the cross to pay for the sins of all men. Pilate says, behold the man. And they are to celebrate what he's done and to be appeased. But the people aren't satisfied. They cry for crucifixion. Crucifixion, we, as we read in, in our fighter verse this morning, is the curse of God upon a man. They, they cry for him to go to the cross and to be cursed. And they speak better than they know. They're crying for him to be done away with, cursed by God, but they're calling out for crucifixion, not knowing that what they are asking for is the plan of God, that God would curse him because our sins are on him and he would go to the cross. The scripture says that he became sin for us, that we might in him become the righteousness of God. Notice Pilate's testy reply back to the people. Pilate says, go ahead, take him, and kill him yourselves, because I find no sin in him, again, declaring his complete innocence. Go ahead and take him yourselves and kill him. And their reply is, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he made himself the son of God. Notice that Pilate is now scared. Something, what they've just said, has, has now set him on edge. It says that he redoubles his efforts to set Jesus free. Now, you, in order to understand what's going on in Pilate's mind, I think you have to think like a Roman citizen. They had, right, if you've got any of these books in your home, a book of Greek myths, you know, uh, stories that were told over and over again. These are the, the narratives that govern their thinking in their life. God men were not uncommon for the Romans, right? There are these stories about how the gods were created, right? Zeus comes down and masquerades in human flesh and produces human god children like Hercules. And this was common in their mythology. Think Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas work a miracle, the people began to think that they are Zeus and Hermes in the flesh, and they begin to sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas are tearing their clothes and weeping. Don't worship us as gods. We are not gods in human form. Pilate is now thinking, what if I am in the middle of a Greek story? And here is a God incarnate in flesh. He has come down and he's got flesh on him. Am I going to be involved in killing a God, a divine man? And so he speaks to Jesus and says, who are you? What is, who are you? Tell me where you're from. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think about who Jesus is with a word. He could call the hosts of heaven to rescue him. With a word, he could strike everyone dead. But yet he says nothing. 
Pilate's angered response is like a testy schoolchild, a bully on a playground. Look at verse 10. He says, you will not speak to me? You're not going to talk back? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I find this intensely ironic. If he had the authority to release Jesus, why didn't he just release him? I have the authority to crucify you. He's saying, I could let you go. You've got to satisfy what I want to know because I can have you crucified. And here's where we move from Jesus' ironic majesty. They are all praising him and treating him the exact opposite of his character. We move to there to see Jesus' majestic trust in his father as king and God over all creation. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Notice Jesus' response in verse 11. Two things he says. The first is he says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then he says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, let's just notice this here. Notice what Jesus is doing in the second half of this sentence. He is speaking compassion to Pilate. I would be hard-pressed to say anything kind to anyone at this moment. But yet Jesus is wonderfully compassionate to Pilate. He is... uh, The beauty of his character goes beyond anything I can conceive. He speaks truth in the first sentence and then comfort in the second. What he's saying in the second half of the sentence, I'm going to go back to the first part, is he's saying that Caiaphas is manipulating Pilate's God-given authority. Pilate's only nominally involved in sending Jesus to the cross. Okay? Caiaphas has riled up this crowd. He has gotten everybody hungering and thirsting after Jesus' blood. They are all screaming and chanting, and they're manipulating the justice system. And so Caiaphas himself is supremely guilty of this sin. Pilate, only less. Jesus is trying to comfort him here. There are pages written about that sentence in commentaries, by the way, but I'm... That doesn't, that doesn't really grab me, and it's not what I want to show you about Jesus' trust in his Father. Look back at verse 11. This is Jesus' reply. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't engage Pilate's desire to set him free. He doesn't use Pilate's sympathy for him to, to secure his own release. Instead, he speaks the truth to Pilate, and this is what he says. You would have no authority over me at all unless... It had been given to you from above. I want to camp here and drive this point home. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. God is completely and utterly in charge of everything that ever happens. Ever. From the first instance of creation To the last moment of time, God is in charge. And we don't like this as people. We don't like this. I will confess, I resisted this truth for many years. But cracks began to form. And and, and let me just kind of walk you through this. We see first what Jesus is talking about here is he's saying that God delegates authority to keep order by means of government. You look at Romans 13, you will see that. God appoints government to keep order. And if, if you don't think that government can be any good, look at the history of countries that have no government. And it's just chaos. And you will see that bad government's better than no government. Good government's better. A monarchy with God and Jesus at its head would be the best government, and we're looking forward to a thousand years of that someday. Yeah. Praise God. But, yeah. Woo. Now, notice this. A little side sermon there. Done. Um, also, Proverbs 16.33 says this. Listen to this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You can shake the Yahtzee dice in the cup, and you can roll them out, and you will think this is the most random thing, but whether or not you get five of the same number, or a full house, 
you know, or, 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 or a straight or whatever you get in Yahtzee. God decides that. The most random thing you could possibly think of, God is in control of. Okay, is he just in control? This verse, by the way, is like one of the first cracks that begins to form in my resistance against his sovereignty. Here's another one. Luke chapter 9, verses 40 through 56. Jairus' daughter is ill and she is dying. And so Jairus runs and says, my daughter is ill. And he says, you've got to get to my house right now. She's just a little girl. She needs your help. And so Jesus begins to follow him. He's going, and a woman comes up to him and touches him. She has been suffering with an issue of blood for 12 years. And she touches the hem of Jesus' robe, and suddenly Jesus stops. And here's Jairus. He's walking away, and he looks back, and Jesus is gone. He's like, oh, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. And Jesus is like, who touched me? And Jairus says, this is not good. No, come with me. Come with me. You know, I need you. You've got to get to my house right now. Jesus, who touched me? The apostles conduct their investigation. They produce this trembling woman who's like, all I wanted to do is get better. You know, please. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. She'd been suffering for 12 years. Jesus gets to the house. The little girl has died. He raises her. Gives her back to her parents. How old is she? She's 12. 12 years earlier, this woman began suffering and this little girl was born, and the entire event was planned. That their lives would intersect. He's sovereign. That's not an accident. He's in charge of that. He appointed that she would get ill on that day, and that the woman would find Jesus on that day, that Jairus and the crowd might have faith. Pilate has been given this place, this moment, this decision, this problem, by the direction and for ordaining sovereign will of the God of heaven. God is in absolute, total control. Here's crack number two. As I, as I scan the biblical evidence, I look through the text and I see, does God love evil? No. Does God ever sin? No. Is he in control of sins? In such a way that he is never guilty of them and the people who commit them are guilty and culpable for them? Yes. Am I responsible for my sins? Yes. Does it have to make sense that he's in control of everything and yet he is not guilty of my sin which I commit? It doesn't have to make sense. But it will change your life if you believe that God is in control of all things and you are completely guilty for sins you choose to commit, for wrong actions you choose to engage, and yet God can take all things, they are in his plan, they do not take him by surprise, and turn them to his will because he has planned his will from the beginning to the end. I, I, can't, even, I can't even begin to relate this to you. This is, this is where my brain just stops. It's like these two ideas go up into the clouds and the solution is above. It's like two sides of a mountain. There is human ability to act and then there is God's sovereignty and they meet somewhere where God remains completely sovereign. God is not bound by our actions. He is in total and complete control. Now, let me translate this into real life. I could do a better job explaining that to you maybe in like 20 years. I, 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 I don't know. Jesus says, to Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus' lack of fear and his composure and his ability to stand firm have everything to do with his trust in the plan and the will of the Father and nothing to do with what's happening to him. Nothing to do with what's happening to him. He believed firmly that God was in control and that Pilate would not be in control if it was not his Father's will. I was listening to a sermon by a pastor named Joseph Son almost 10 years ago. Sam was three months old. He had just been born. I, I, moved, I was at a conference in Minneapolis, and I heard this Romanian pastor speaking. This is where my resistance came completely unglued. And I just, I said, all right, I submit. You're in control. I believe it. I will live this out as, as, to the best of my ability the rest of my days. He's, he's sharing about the persecution he endured under communism. He's been taken in to interrogation for preaching the gospel, and six men are in a room. And he is sharing, talking to them, 
And in order to intimidate him, they begin to beat him. And he begins screaming and crying out. He doesn't understand why this is happening. And then he hears the words of Jesus in his spirit, speaking to his mind, saying, they would have no authority over you at all unless it had been given to them by your father. And in that moment, in the midst of this horrible suffering, he said he conceived of those six men as puppets on a string doing the will of God. Yet God is not evil. And he said, this is not an encounter between me and them. This is an encounter between me and God. Think of the scariest thing in the Bible, okay? In America, we read the book of Revelation. We want to know what it's all about. And we think that the scariest thing, I think, the scariest thing to Americans in the Bible is probably the beast in his ten horns, right? Because what does he do? He runs around, scares everybody, could destroy the whole world, ruin everything, right? The beast. Rapture me, take me away so that I don't have to go through that, right? Now look at Revelation 17. It's probably the only other verses that are going to come up this morning. But look at this. And the ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute, okay? This is like, you know, there's all this stuff going on in the book of Revelation. Here's the scary, evil monster. The ten horns, the beast, they'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Why? Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until... The words of God are fulfilled. The beast and the ten horns, they are like the book of Revelation's version of a giant Godzilla monster destroying the whole world, right? Where does the program that controls the evil monster come from? It is created and implanted by the Father. This is what Joseph Son says, okay? These six men are intimidating me, and they are responsible for their actions, and they are guilty for their actions, yet they can go no further than my father permits them. Because my daddy is in control. That is amazing confidence in the power of God. Now think about Jesus. Here he is. His suffering was appointed by his father for the salvation of the world. This evil act carried out by wicked men is the good plan of God to save all men. It is yet, it's humanity's worst moment. It's our worst moment, and yet at the same time, it is God's most brilliant moment. It is his most beautiful moment. He saves the world through this wicked act because he is sovereign and in control. Now, his suffering was appointed by his Father for the salvation of the world. Our suffering. And if you reject this, your suffering will have no purpose. Our suffering is appointed to us and portioned out to us for our transformation, for God's glory and to build our satisfaction in him. Our suffering, listen to this, is appointed to us and portioned out to us for our transformation, for his glory, and to build our satisfaction in him. If you struggle with chronic pain this morning, if you are in the midst of a horrific situation, please don't think that I am just trying to correct you and set you on your way so that you'll have the right way of thinking. This is not easy to come to. So don't think that, like, if, if, you, if you share something with me or you say, I, I, why is God doing this that I'm going to, like, jump all over you? I'm not going to do that. But we need to grapple with these texts that are in the scriptures. The writer of the book of Hebrews is not speaking of punishment, but of shaping of character when he says this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines 
the one he loves. Do you hear that? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He doesn't discipline the one who he has the least patience for. He's not disciplining the one who needs the most growth. You could be living a perfect Christian life. You're not, but you could be. (laughs) You could be. And you would still have trials and pain and difficulty and suffering. Why? Because he loves you. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. You will suffer. God has predestined it. The purpose of that suffering is to peel you off from this world and to put all of your hope and your satisfaction in him. And when someone like our sister, who's going to go for hip replacement surgery, says, I count it joy that I understand the gospel and I know why this is happening, who gets the glory? Does she or does he? Who is it who can bring pain into our lives and yet we still love him? A good and merciful God whom we deserve nothing good from. He gives us pain, he apportions suffering to us to transform our perspective so that we might glorify him and to build our satisfaction in him. It's God's will that we suffer, whether it's persecution, health trouble, stress, conflict. We suffer because it's his pleasure to peel us off from this world. You don't get cancer by accident. You are not orphaned without God's knowledge. You don't get into a car accident without him knowing, planning that it will happen, yet without evil intent or sin. God is as sovereign over your employment as he is over the affairs of the nations. The scriptures present a God who is full of goodness without sin in him, and yet he uses pain and suffering and the evil acts of men and women to accomplish his purposes in the world. He hates evil, yet he loves his children, yet he uses calamity and pain to shape us. Let me challenge you to test the truth of this next statement. The scriptures don't spend a lot of time debating the existence of God. They spend an enormous amount of time Establishing his goodness and his sovereignty and calling us to trust him. Suffering is an encounter between a person and his God. In the midst of this hard moment, we catch a glimpse into Jesus' rock-solid faith in the character of the Father. How is your trust in the Father's character this morning? Are you trusting in the power of God or in your own ability to live your life? When you think of this church and God's power to exalt this church or to destroy it, is your confidence in him or in offering numbers and attendance numbers? Is your faith in God based on how well your business is doing or whether or not you have a job? Is your assessment of his goodness the same as when you're sick? Or when you're well. And kick it up a notch. If you were to find out this week that your wife had cancer. Tomorrow. Or that you had a week to live. Or that you were going blind. Or that you would be killed if you spoke the name of Jesus aloud. Would that destroy your faith? We can cry tears of pain and desperation in these situations, but our Savior teaches us that God is in control. And even suffering is a sign of his deep love and affection for us. Do you believe that the words that say that are true? Let me just take a moment to fire at a cancerous theology that's alive today. There are many of you who suffer from chronic pain. There are those of you who are in difficult situations, emotional pain, 
conflict, you're trusting him for a job, but there are many people who would tell you, if you just had more faith, this wouldn't be happening. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because Jesus stood there beaten and bruised and abused, and he stood in the sovereign power of God, and no one had more faith than him ever. If anyone were to be delivered, it would be him. It has nothing to do with your faith. It is about the shaping of your faith and your trust in him and his goodness toward you. Please don't ever think if you just had more faith, you'd get well. It's not true. Let me close off. Let's look at the betrayal of the God King. Pilate sought to release Jesus in verses 12 through 16, but the, the people stabbed at the political realities of the situation. They said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. By the way, Pilate was not a good man. He was derelict in his duty. He took many bribes. He'd been involved in many difficult, wrong things, which he should not have been in. And he knew that if word made it back to Rome, that, that his, his bad deeds would quickly outweigh his good deeds, and he would be removed. There were lots of governor types ready to take his place, you know, ready for him to fall down so they could leap on him. Personal feeling moves Pilate to free Jesus. He wants to let him go, but the high priest, they know their man, and they use his personal feeling to preserve himself to get him to give Jesus over. He betrays innocent blood to save his own neck. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. So he goes out to the seat and he judges Jesus. One last try. He says, behold your king. And they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. He says, shall I crucify your king? And though they know the word so well, Though they know Judges 8.23, where Gideon refuses to be king, Gideon says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, because God is their king. And though they know 1 Samuel 8.7, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. They've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Though they know these words, they say, We have no king but Caesar. And that's a lie. But their betrayal is full. They say to Jesus, you are worthless, you are scum, you deserve to die, you are accursed. But in that moment, all the angels of heaven are leaning over, watching, knowing that one day they'll sing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to be crucified. The whole world believed that he was condemned. But he was freeing all men from condemnation. As we close this morning, let me just urge you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there is no good thing that you can do to save yourself. But you can trust in the best man, in the only man who was sinless and went to the cross to take our sins upon himself that we might have his righteousness. You can trust there. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. And God will forgive you. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, let me challenge you. If you're bothered by this idea of God's sovereignty. Don't run away from it. Don't resist it. Investigate it. Challenge it. But let me challenge you to embrace it because it will give you great hope and confidence to meet every trial in your life. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, speaking of these events is difficult because we know that you did not deserve 
the punishment that was put upon you. In fact, we confess to our shame that so often we don't think that we deserve it, and yet we do. And so, Lord, as we look at your sufferings, we may be tempted to mourn over them. And that is a right thing to do. But more than that, we ought to look to those sufferings and see our own salvation. See what you do for us, Lord, the suffering that you take upon yourself. The pain that you endure to go to the cross and give your life that we might live. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never put their faith and trust in you to free themselves from their sins, Lord, I pray that you would show them they can do nothing to free themselves. But you've done it all on the cross. And that if they would just put their faith in you, if you're calling them, they put their soul confidence in the cross, Lord, you will cleanse them from every sin. Forgive them for every wrong and give them new life. We thank you for that. Father, I pray for each of us that we would have a strong view of your sovereignty. Lord, let us not engage silly myths or have truths about you, Father. We pray that we would see you in your fullness as sovereign over all things, Lord. Not the author of evil, not guilty of any evil, Lord, but a good steward of your creation who loves us and who is in control. Father, we know that the worst sins committed against us, that the most horrible calamities, Lord, that the greatest evils, you shepherd us through them. You are our good and loving Father, Lord. We can call you Daddy and know that you will support us through them. Father, we pray that you would hold us strong in this confidence and this belief about you. We pray that you'd help us to walk in it, Lord. No one has any authority over us except what you have given to them. We pray that this would sustain us through sickness, through suffering, through persecution, through hard times. May we live and walk in the light of that truth all of our days, Lord. We trust you. You are sovereign and you are good. We know that you're working all things together for your glory and our joy. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.